As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to the latest episode of The Shamrock. It's April 1st. I'm Pete Sampson, joined as always by Matt Fortuna. No guests today, but we have plenty of Notre Dame football to talk about. Past with Pro Day wrapping up this week um, and current with spring practice. The third practice is happening as we're recording. Um, And I guess, why don't we just start with Pro Day? Because I think that NFL draft analysis sort of dominates the conversation from now or the end of the season until the draft at the end of this month. But was there, was there anything that surprised you during uh, Notre Dame's pro day other than um, Ian book being compared by Corey Robinson to a, uh, a Greek hero, um, which I thought was a bit of a Homer comment, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> it's April 1st and Pete is bringing it with the puns already. I thought you were going to say Ian book being <clears throat> deceptively. Oh my God. Uh, yeah. Athletic. It's yeah. I, I I appreciated you replying with a Pat Connaughton gif uh, after that. Pat Connaughton, I think, set the NBA combine record for yeah, vertical it, and was in the freaking dunk the most deceptively last year. athletic Notre Dame athlete of all time. Um, but I mean, look, Ian Book. If you had watched Ian Book play at all in the last four years, you knew that he was just athletic. He wasn't deceptively athletic. He wasn't sneaky athletic. He wasn't. A gym rat coach's son, fundamentally sound, uh, try hard, gritty guy. Like he's just a, a good at. Come on, Pete. Yeah. He's a Northern California son of a cop who beat out a four star who couldn't he's run just the a offense. Good athlete. Um, I don't think we need to like couch it with um, just bizarre terms. It's. I mean, his four point five nine. I realize that is the fastest forty of the BK era in terms of quarterbacks, which doesn't really say a whole lot, but. More interesting would have tied Jalen Hurts from the NFL Combine. Um, yes, that would have been tied for third among. So that's last that's year. the kind of athlete he is. There's there's nothing deceptive about it. <laughs> no, not quite. I mean, how many time? How much criticism did he get for using his legs to bail him out last year and in the years past? I mean, everyone knew the guy could move. Everyone knew the guy had wheels, and everyone knew he was a quick thinker. Now, I'll say this: I, the forty time. Impressed and surprised me a little because I do think there's a difference between straight line speed and football speed. And rarely did you see Ian Book just take off down the middle or on a designed run. I mean, he made a lot of things happen 
with his legs and with his mind in the spur of the moment. And I think that's where, uh, you know, I mean, Andrew Hendricks, I remember being incredibly fast, but could he move? Could he go on the move the way Ever Golson could when he was, you know, there's pressure? Probably not. So I think there are different kinds of speed we're talking about here. And in that regard, Ian Book really impressed me by running a 4 5 nine, 40. But am I surprised? Is he deceptive? No, 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 no. Now the one the, the the forty that impressed me, I tweeted this. Uh, Sean Crawford wrote at four four seven. I know that's not going to jump off the page for a cornerback, but what's he had three surgeries on his legs at least, and some other nicks and bumps across the last six years. I mean, you look at what that guy's body's been through, and he's been able to to get himself up to that level. That's pretty damn. That impressive. was that was surprising to me. Um, you know, Nick McLeod. Getting in the four threes was surprising to me. I, I wonder how banged up he was last year. That was something that I had heard after the Duke game, um, that he essentially played hurt almost all of the year. Um, I think it was more upper body than lower body, but he also, I think, had a, a lower body injury that wiped out a season at NC State, which is why he was available as a grad transfer. Um, I don't think he played like a 4-3 anything corner um, last season, but I thought he was a really good college player. Um, I think that he's, he's probably still an undrafted free agent or maybe he's a late-round pick now, but certainly somebody that we get in a camp. I thought that – I don't know who had this sort of takeaway from Ian Book's workout. Um, I think it was a national analyst who I'm blanking on, but I thought it was interesting is they talked a little bit about Baker Mayfield's numbers – you know, we mentioned Jalen Hurts, Kyler Murray. Like, I think Ian Book is going to be drafted to be a number two. But if your quarterback looks like Murray, Hurts, Mayfield, I think Book would be a great number two because you're getting a sort of a, a like-for-like backup. Um, and once you have those testing numbers down, then I think you've – I don't know, you, you've got somebody who would fit a system um, with, that can make a athletic, versatile – shorter quarterback work um i think that 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 may have sort of cinched up ian book as like a, a number two for a team that that plays his style of offense there shouldn't be any surprises with him at this point the guy's played more football as a starting quarterback at the power five level than, than pretty much anyone over this past era he's the winningest quarterback in the history of notre dame uh, you know what you're getting i mean do you wish he was taller sure who, who doesn't wish they were taller but i mean you know what you're getting with him uh you know he was a captain of the team the last two years i had a a running text with a, we'll call him a friend of the program who pre all the draft hype at the end of the season wanted to bet me that uh, he put the over under at 175 for Ian Book's draft pick. And I, he really thought he would be higher than 175th pick. And frankly, I did too, which is why I did not take him up on this bet. And I'm glad I didn't as we see more and more positives come out from Ian Book's pre draft workouts. But that number right now seems incredibly, I don't know if you'd say low or high, it seems. Um, Bigger than it should be. I mean, I think he'll be drafted much higher than that because, again, quarterbacks don't grow on trees. If you got a guy you could bring in the room who's going to make the room better, who's going to at least challenge and compete uh, to push your starter, and who's you know, not going to get in trouble, who's going to do all the right things, and who knows how to conduct himself like an adult in an NFL locker room. I mean, I think this is, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't say Ian Book's made himself more money over the last couple months, but I think it's confirming what those who have followed the program closely have already known about him. Yeah, I really thought that that was why Pro Day was, was sort of not all that interesting for Notre Dame because it, it was much more of a, a confirmation workout for a lot of players than it was any kind of revelation, with the exception of Nick McLeod's speed, I guess. Um, 
there was, you know, Tommy Tremble was exactly what you thought he would be. Um, he's a big athlete who moves quickly, um, good 40 time for that size uh, and that position, certainly relative to Notre Dame. Um, you know, Jeremiah Wusu-Kormoa, shockingly, he's in really good shape uh, and can play a bunch of different positions. Um, you know, I, I, you know, Liam Meikenberg or Robert Hainsey, you know, maybe if you're Aaron Banks, you wanted to show a little bit more um, athletically than you did. You know, 24 on the bench press compared to 33 from Meikenberg or tw- 32 from Hainsey is, you know, maybe not great. Um, but his vertical jump was... 31 inches compared to Eichenberg and Hainsey, which were, you know, four, five, six inches less. So I, it's, um, I think for the most part, everything that came out of that was about what you expected. Again, short of McLeod's 40, and you make a good point about Crawford's 40, because I think his body it was just sort of on its kind of its, its final ligaments uh, by the end of last season. It's, it's good to see that he's been able to sort of rehab to a point where he can run a 447. Did anyone ask him if he wants to come back for a... a Somebody did um, on <laughs> earlier in the week, and uh, he said... I met NFL scouts. Oh, yeah. No, it was never seriously considered. Uh, Eichenberg's 33 of the bench would have been tied for fourth um, last year, so that was impressive. I know Brian Kelly went on a local radio show, I think, yesterday and said he thinks he's more of a guard than a tackle, and I think that's probably accurate, but he was being looked at you know, to potentially play tackle by some NFL team, so... We'll see how that happens or how that that plays out. But yeah, I mean, to your point, there's yeah. I was just I was just saying there, there weren't any big surprises. Yeah, I think that Eichenberg's stock, like I, I think he was sort of like a hopeful first round pick. I don't. It certainly doesn't seem like that's going to happen for him unless a team unless there's a run on offensive linemen um, and a team has to do it. But like, if he's a first round pick, he's probably you know to the Chiefs and the last pick of the first round. Um, Not which, bad. <laughs> which will be – it's un, it may snap one of my favorite Brian Kelly streaks of having a first-round pick start at left tackle in every game he's coached at Notre Dame other than two. Um, if I can – Which were the – Matt Romine first started two games uh, when Zach Martin actually moved to right tackle for two games. Uh, 2010? In 2010. Right. So but, I got on the beat in 2011, so every game yeah. since I've been on the beat. But yeah, but every, uh, everything since has been uh, first-round pick, which I, I was hoping Eichenberg would continue for for Eichenberg and uh, I think for the sake of that streak. Um, Pete, yeah. Pete Stogg has some hot takes in the background here, as you can probably tell. Yeah. Ex- um, but even that, I mean, we're talking about a finalist for the Joe Moore Award that might not have had a first-round pick. Like, that's still really good for Notre Dame, if you ask me. I mean, it's not... Mike McGlinchey and Quinn and Nelson when they won the Joe Moore Award being picked in the top 10 together, but like still a really freaking dominant and talented group that uh, played well together and, and got the most out of everything they had together. Like, I don't, uh, it's a great streak, but I would have looked at it as some grand disappointment if they don't get a first round pick off that line um, at left tackle. I mean, I just think I agree. That's Notre Dame football right now. You know what you're going to get when we're talking about offensive linemen. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
Victorinox, the makers of the original Swiss Army Knife, have been a reliable companion for life's everyday challenges, mastering functionality, innovation, iconic design, and uncompromising quality with its products. The Victorinox Swiss Army Knife provides you with all the things you don't think about until you need it. Tweezers, a screwdriver, and even a corkscrew. With the Victorinox Swiss Army Knife, you can be prepared to master everyday life. You can find Victorinox Swiss Army Knives at Dick's Sporting Goods. I think in some ways this draft, short of Ousu Cormo going in the first rounds, you know, maybe it will be a bunch of fifth, sixth round picks, um, with Eichenberg going in the second, Tremble going in the third. I don't I don't think it's gonna be a draft that would necessarily be indicative of a team that went ten and two and made the college football playoff. Um, which is kind of one of those things that as much as these programs like to promote their draft production for recruiting purposes, which I totally get, the fact that they're not going to have three first-round picks will be a compliment to Bayless, Kelly, Lee, Reese, like the the staff overall, because um, I, I think that they will they will can probably look back at last year's team and say like, you know what we got we got a lot out of a roster that was good. But we had a great season despite having a really good roster. So it's, um, you know, that, that sort of developmental aspect of it will be, will be bared out by a, a draft that I don't think is going to be overwhelming for Notre Dame. No, it's almost, as I say that, I'm thinking to myself, it's almost like the opposite of the 2014 draft when that 2013 team went only 9-4 and four and they had one, two, they had eight guys drafted, um, including Zach Martin in the first round. Um, and Stefan to it in the second round. I mean, um, now the majority of those guys were part of the, the undefeated team in 2012. So certainly uh, they were productive. 13 team was by no means as good as the 2012 team. Whereas this one, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think you squeeze the most possible out of out of the material you, material you had at hand. Um, it, you know, as we talk about drafts, we talk about where guys are going to go. We talk about Ian Book. Um, I know it's a quarterback-heavy draft, but I almost think that works in Ian Book's favor because if we're going to have four quarterbacks taken among the first four picks, which certainly looks like that's going to be the case right now, um, that leaves a lot of room later for, for more guys to pick up quarterbacks who they might not look at to be a starter. And, again, I think that's a good place to be right now if you're Ian Book. All right, I, a prediction that I will hold you to on a future podcast. How many draft picks does Notre Dame ultimately have? This next month or end of this month? End of this month. Let me look. I'm looking at it. Chris Fink is on here. He's with Jameer Jones. It's uh, I think because there was no pro day last year, there was a, a handful of guys across the country that came back to do a pro day. I just noticed that right now, and I figured when we have it was you know we we're I'm co-hosting a podcast with the PR firm representing Chris Fink, so I figured he had yeah. something to do with that. <laughs> um, I will go with eight. Eight. I think that you know. Three offensive linemen, Banks, Hainsey, Eichenberg, Book, Tremble. I feel like... Jeremiah, yeah. Yeah, obviously, Wusu Kormoa. Beyond that, I, f- I feel like I've seen players better than Dalen Hayes and Ade Ogandeje go undrafted out of Notre Dame. Yes. Ian Williams, Romeo Aquara. Um, so I'll, I'll do one. I'm going to do seven overall. I think they have seven draft picks. Uh, with one of those defensive linemen going, but Fair the enough. other one not. I mean, I, yeah, I was between seven and eight for the same reasons you were. I mean, it's yeah. whenever we gather in person again, you can we can have a beer riding on the over under of seven <laughs> or eight. 
I can't wait for that deck. Spring ball, Mm -hmm. as you mentioned, in the middle of practice number three right now. Only so much we can gather from videos and and people speaking, but any grand takeaways from uh, the first two days of practice? I thought that um, Drew Pine as a challenger to Jack Cohn Mm. was more serious than I would have expected. That surprised me, too. Um, I thought that that was that was by far the biggest like huh and I and I still think Jack Cohn will be the guy um, I, I thought about it in terms you put this well on a recent podcast when we were talking about Nick Saban and Brian Kelly it's like if you're saying Nick Saban couldn't win a national title you're saying nobody could like in some ways I feel like the idea that Jack Cohn would come here from Wisconsin and not win the job over a guy who never played like that that would just blow my mind um, based on his experience, Pine, Pine and Cohn's experience. So I I don't think anybody but Cohn will start on September 1st at Florida State. Is it September 1st? Um, it's Labor Day. I just Labor, say Labor Day. Day. Labor Day Sunday. <laughs> um, or Labor, yeah, Labor Day Sunday. <laughs> but the, the notion that Drew Pine could be a legitimate number two, which – then you start thinking about like, well, wait a minute, wasn't Tyler Buckner supposed to be the number two? That is kind of an interesting development. Um, and it's interesting whether Pine wins the job or not. Uh, but overall, I think that's, if Pine is a legitimate player, that's a good thing for Notre Dame, whether he whether he's the number two or the number three, because in some ways, I think it would make Tyler Buckner winning the number two job more impressive because the staff feels like Pine is a somebody that he can go out and do it. I don't, I don't necessarily agree with Brian Kelly's notion that like everybody has said that Drew Pine can't do it. And like he, you know, his entire, like he was a four-star prospect who had an offer from Alabama when he was in middle school. So he's been, he's plenty talented um, to be a quarterback at at a Notre Dame level is, you know, look, is he Trevor Lawrence or DJ Uyunglele? No, um, not even close, but um, he's got some skills, which is why Notre Dame recruited him in the first place. September 5th is the opener. We were both way off. Um, That one jumped out to me, too. I was surprised to hear that. It was like, look, we're always playing a bit of a guessing game and a psychology game, right, as far as trying to decipher what Brian Kelly is actually trying to do or convey to us when he speaks. And I think we do that even more now because we can't see anything for ourselves due to COVID. I mean, I was surprised to hear them say that, but the more I thought about it, I thought, like, is this just a guy going out of his way to tamp down the hype on Tyler Buckner, who we've all been talking about ad nauseum forever and ever? And is this just a way for us to to try to take the focus off him and go on our podcast and write about Drew Pine, um, a guy who we haven't spoken or written about a whole lot? Um, I don't know. I mean, I I haven't heard anything one way or another as far as, like, hey, is this guy actually challenging Jack Conan? Whether he is or isn't, I still expect Jack Cohn to start. Uh, but but I, I, maybe I'm overthinking it. I, I hear Brian Kelly say that, and I immediately my ears perk up, and then I think, uh, eh, he's just saying that so we, you know, aren't saying Tyler Buckner is the next best thing to come out of Notre Dame before he's even taken a snap. That could be. I mean, it definitely it could be a way to like deflect Buckner more than say that Cohn is under any serious threat. I mean, I think we've both been told that Notre Dame felt like Cohn was the best quarterback in the portal. Um, and they got they got the best guy for them. Um, 
know, when you, I think when you talk to coaches privately, I've, I have not heard, I've heard good things about Drew Pine that like he gets it, fits in, um, you know, good guy for the locker room, good guy for the quarterback room. But I haven't heard anything that makes me think that Cone is not, not the guy or the, or the heavy favorite for that job. Um, I, I mean, other things that I thought were interesting, Jordan Johnson made has made a few appearances. Uh, I'm, I'm glad that Notre Dame put that in there for, for the sake of people's sanity who want more of a vertical passing game. Um, I thought that Brian Kelly's commentary on the future of the offense was interesting as well when he talked about how, you know, if we have to go four wide, five wide, we can do that. Um, if we are going to be, if we need to do two, three tight ends, we can do that. Because um, I don't, think that Notre Dame really gave the impression at all last year that if they had to go four or five wide, they actually could. Um, which is interesting because they lost Javon McKinley and Ben Skoranek. Why would you suddenly be able to do this? Um, I don't have an answer for you on that one, but I think it's just good that Notre Dame is open to that idea because they, they have to be open to that idea. They can't play in a box like they did last season. Yeah, I thought that was an interesting comment, and I thought the same thing you did. I thought that's great. I'd love to see it. But like this year's team might be even more conducive to not doing that than last year's team was when you struggled to do that. And, you know, I know they lost four offensive linemen. They lost Chris Wise, a GA. They've hired a GA who will be finalized here in the next couple of days. They can't announce it just yet on the offensive line. No one there is worried about the offensive line. I mean, they think they have some really good players there. Blake Fisher is a guy who I think, from the sounds of it, might challenge for a starting spot from the very beginning as a true freshman. I mean, you know, everyone comes in there as a freshman has to put on weight. He has to lose weight because he's so damn big, and I mean that in a good way. I mean that that guy's going to be uh, not not to look too far ahead as we talk about draft, but that's a guy you're going to have on your radar two years from now. Um, tight ends. I mean, I know they lost Trumbull, but they've still got a lot in that room. Meyer, Mayer, Takis, Evans, Bauman. I mean, I think this year's offense might look like a more more similar to last year's offense in a good way than it will spreading things out and playing a different way. And if they can do that, that's great. That means receivers that have not previously stepped up or stayed healthy will have stepped up or stayed healthy. I just look at that roster and I talk to the people in that building and think, you know, they might be even more tougher and meatier and ground and poundy, for lack of a better term, than they were last year, just based on the personnel. <laughs> I, Beef, it's what's for breakfast, have, as the great Troy Nicholas would say. I don't know. I'm. I guess I'm a little bit more skeptical of what the offensive line can do to be a, a ground and pound offense, um, based on how much they lost. Brian Kelly certainly seemed concerned about the offensive line uh, when he talked to us on Saturday. I, I liked his comment there, so, though. I mean, I think. In what way? Just like, just the, like we're, hey, everything is on the table? No, like, look, we made the playoff two of the last three years. That's a standard. There's no time. There's no room for excuses. Like, you got to play and you got to play well. Um, there was no, at least I, I, I didn't interpret it as, well, we're rebuilding there. It's not going to be as good as last year. I mean, sure, there's some question marks because you're going to have four new starters. But, I mean, I, I thought that was a good tone set publicly to say, like, this is the standard and, and you know, Joe Moore Award two of the last four years, or finalist two of the last four years. Like, you know, this is what you got to do. Um, there's no, there's no room to, to you know, ease into this. I mean, it's offensive line. It's Notre Dame football. Like, this is a standard. I, I, I like, I yeah. like hearing him say that. No, it's uh, I, 
I like that part of it. I, lo- I like the sort of the notion of like you don't get a pass just because you lose four starters. Um, you know, but I just think that you. I think that the offensive line goes in right now. I think they've got two and a half guys they feel good about: Jared Patterson, Zeke Carell, and then sort of Josh Lug. Um, just he said back injuries. You're that size. You're taking that kind of beating. I don't think you ever feel like totally 100 percent like that's that's good to go, but. If you can, you need to really pull two guys out of whether it's Blake Fisher. I think Rocco Spindler is a little bit farther away than Fisher is. Um, but then you're into sort of the Quinn Carroll, Andrew Kristofik, uh, Dylan Gibsons, John Dirksen, guy, guys who have been around here for a minute but have not played at all uh, or played very little. You need you need a surprise or you need two surprises from that group. I think to have a, a good offense on Tosh Baker. Um, it was interesting talking to Liam Eikenberg about him earlier this week on Pro Day because I, I wanted to know, like, okay, what's what's the gap there? Like, what is it, what's he going to have to make up most? And when he said strength, to me, that is that means you're you're probably still another year away. Um, you know, adding enough strength to be uh, a high end left tackle that Notre Dame needs is probably not a not going to happen in one off season that may, that may take an an entire another year. And then, which is fine. I think that offensive lineman, the clock really starts ticking during their, their academic junior season. And Tosh Baker is just a sophomore. It's it's really, really rare for sophomores to start on the line. Yeah, but they're going to have, we talked about this on a previous show, Florida state's not there yet. I mean, I know it's Florida state, but they're still years away. I think from, from resembling a, a team that's going to beat Notre Dame. Toledo, Purdue. I mean, you've got Wisconsin's a different deal, of course, but they've got some time to ease into this thing. Uh, they really do. I mean, th- this year's schedule, you could argue whether it's tougher than last year's or not, as far as, you know, you do play some non power teams, but you also play Wisconsin. I mean, Cincinnati's a non power team, but they're probably the second best team on the schedule. And, you know, Notre Dame's probably going to be favored in every game, depending on how the season goes. But you look at it right now, preseason, I mean, I, maybe Wisconsin will be favored to them. Um, I think they'll have time to, to grow. I mean, again, do I think they're going to snap their fingers and be as good as last year's unit? No. But I don't think it's a cause for concern the way people who read Phil, Phil Steele and Athlon and the, the preseason mags and base all their predictions on returning starters are, are going to determine it. Because I know offensive line continuity is probably the biggest predictor of success for any any team year over year. And Notre Dame is deficient in that standpoint. But I think they've recruited well enough and developed well enough at that group that I, I just don't think it's going to take a giant step back. And again, you have so many tight ends on that roster, so many um, that that can get in there and and I, I agree. Block a guy, I think it. the tight end room will be just fine. Um, like last year, I'm sure we spent a lot of time talking about how are they going to replace Cole Komet. Like, well, God, five star mayor crushing blow for the offense. <laughs> they recruited a five um, star. Those no, guys tend fine. to be pretty good. Um. Yeah. Uh, defensively, I thought it was interesting to hear players say what I have heard privately, that Marcus Freeman's scheme is just like, go freaking get the football. Um, it's not overly complicated. I, and I think a lot of people would be surprised to, to find out how complicated Clark Lee's scheme actually was for that position, uh, for linebackers, I mean. Um, there was a lot of reading, reacting, a lot of rules, a lot of adjustments. Uh, and I think that Freeman removing that is, I'm not saying the defense is going to be be better, 
but it'll just be different. Um, and maybe that maybe that gives um, a shot for a younger player. Like Prince Kali isn't even here yet, um, but he's going to be a dynamic athlete on the edge. They recruited him to sort of be a Jeremiah Wusukormoa type. Um, I don't know if there's another younger linebacker who jumps out that way, but like even watching the clips, you're seeing a lot of you know, Maris Leofau and Jack Kaiser together. You're seeing J.D. Bertrand out there a lot. Um, maybe there will be a younger player at that position that surprises even Marcus Freeman um, and gets into the mix because the scheme is so different. Yeah, I think it'll be more interchangeable, more adaptable. You'll see more guys in different places, and you'll probably see them go deeper. Whether that's a product of this specific defense or out of necessity, I don't know. I mean, I, I this is by no means the same thing whatsoever and I don't want to like give anyone PTSD here but like the minute Bob Diaco left everyone was talking about oh you know we're playing looser as a defense we're doing this we're doing that and then we saw the Brian Van Gorder experiment happen on Saturdays and it was a huge failure there was a a great feature in Sports Illustrated on Brian Van Gorder's defense just four games into that season Matt was it written by one of our current colleagues it is was written by one of our Uh, we we got to get him back on here Tarosa when he's done covering the final four but uh, no Marcus Freeman's gonna be great the defense will eventually be great under him, but I, I think this one's going to depend a lot more on the personnel at hand. And if you're going to have them playing looser and faster and freer, they're going to be exposed more. And how talented is this group? I don't know. I, I, I don't say that you know to be an insult, but again, I mean, that was a college football playoff defense last year with two surefire NFL draft picks on it. And everyone else who was good, Play, play probably above their heads in most cases. Um, and they don't have one of those guys. They don't have their best player this year in Jeremiah Uso-Karamoa. So I'll be curious to see over time how this defense develops and adapts and, frankly, finds new younger pieces because I think that's ultimately going to be what takes these guys to the next step, at least in year one of the Marcus Freeman era. I do think that like the the trigger players for Notre Dame defensively, if, if Notre Dame has a defense that really surprises you, it's Jordan Batello and Isaiah Foskey, and then it's some version of Clarence Lewis in duplicate. You know whether that's a sophomore, a freshman. You know, like somebody like a you know, Philip Riley. Um, you know, Chance Tucker when he gets here. Uh, Ryan Barnes, who's here as an early enrollee. Like they need, they need a, a surprise at corner to shore that up um, because they. I don't think they can, or a grad transfer. Maybe there's a Nick McLeod. I think people, I, I try to remind people in every podcast or story about like concerns about the secondary. Nick McLeod didn't, didn't commit until May. Um, so there's still time for Notre Dame to find somebody to help out at that, at that position. But I do think they, they need a, a really surprising development on par with Clarence Lewis, or they need somebody from another program to come in and help. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Available 
availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit directtv.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. I agree. I agree. Let's talk about, we talked about this a little bit before the show. ESPN.com had a story yesterday by Andrew Adelson and David Hale talking to talking to Jim Phillips, the new ACC commissioner, but talking to coaches, ADs throughout the ACC about what basically this league can do to close the revenue gap. And uh, the elephant in the room with that discussion, as it always is, is basically Notre Dame because Notre Dame is a money-making machine. And if you can get Notre Dame in as a full-time ACC member, um, you get to renegotiate your TV contracts for a lot more money. Uh, I just thought, you know, there, there were no grand revelations in there as far as what's going to happen, but there were some very insightful, anonymous quotes from people within the conference, one of which I will read to you here, uh, where one coach said about Notre Dame last year, quote, we had the perfect ultimatum last year. We had them. They had nowhere to go. What would they have done? Why would we do that? Because we know that's our lifeboat out from where we're at right now. And to be honest, is that not Notre Dame's lifeboat? Can they survive if the Big Ten and the SEC start lapping everybody? Instead, we just let them run through the front door, take all of our stuff, and run out the back, end quote. Um, pretty powerful and strong quote. Uh, I liked reading that quote uh, because it spices up the story. Is it true? Uh, I have no. my thoughts, but I want to hear yours. <laughs> No, I mean, definitely not true. Uh, Notre Dame has survived this long. Uh, and that quote from somebody who I'm guessing probably sounds a lot like Nat Farduzzi. Um, I don't think really. There was no profanity in it, so I can't promise you it was him. And I don't yeah, want to true. Maybe that's why he was crafty, anonymous quotes. Um, Notre Dame has survived just fine in the same way that Clemson is surviving just fine. Like, why Why does Clemson have a state-of-the-art facility? Uh, why does Clemson have two $2 million a year coordinators, if I'm not mistaken, with Elliott and Venables? Um, and an $8 million a year head coach in Davos Sweeney? Nine. Nine. I'm sorry, $9 million <laughs> a year. Like They invest in themselves and find other ways to do it. Like, if Notre Dame does the same thing. I'm sorry if you're Pittsburgh or... NC State or Wake Forest, which is going to really struggle in this scenario. But Notre Dame, you know, I understand the ACC looks at itself now and be like, huh, it's kind of Clemson and everybody else. Like, that's not healthy. Well, last year it wasn't Clemson and everybody else. It was Clemson and Notre Dame, and then it was sort of North Carolina. Um, there is, if you're creative and aggressive with your fundraising, there's no reason you need to rely on the media rights deals the way that maybe some people farther down the totem pole in the ACC, they're, they're going to get hurt. But Clemson is going to be just fine, um, whether the ACC is close to the Big Ten or far from the Big Ten and SEC and media rights. And I think Notre Dame is going to be in the same deal. I don't know if I see eye to eye with you on that. And by that, I mean, look, Notre Dame's going to be fine. Clemson's going to be fine. I think the Blue Bloods that have money and know how to raise money can do just that. But the revenue gap right now is so astronomically different between the Big Ten, the SEC, and everyone else. And the ACC really is at the bottom of that totem pole right there. I mean, the numbers are 
and they're going to get bigger because the Big Ten has a negotiating a, a new deal coming up in 2023, I believe. SEC paid out $45 million to schools in the last reporting, reporting year. Big Ten did $54 million. The ACC was $27 million. Even the Big 12 was $37 million. Uh, I just, something has to be done. I don't think you can ever change human behavior or geography or any of the, the natural resources that dictate a lot of these things, which is why the Big Ten and the SEC are, are in position to uh, ask and command for that much money. And why Notre Dame is as independent as well. But I do think there's going to be an inflection point here for the ACC where they need to do something to get more money because it's going to quickly be, if not the power four plus one, the power two, you know, if you will, between the Big Ten and the SEC, which again, the Big Ten has another deal coming up in the next couple of years and will even further distance itself from everybody else. And let's not forget the SEC in some ways, was playing with one hand tied behind their back because they had the most TV-friendly deal in the history of TV-friendly deals with CBS, which is finally expiring as the SEC now moves over to ESPN. So uh, something needs to happen. And the SEC just locked itself into this big ACC network deal uh, about a year ago that isn't really good uh, from a financial standpoint. I mean, the, the, having the network stabilizes the conference, but they're not climbing. They're, they're falling behind financially. And I think... It's a genuine cause for concern. Um, I, again, I think it's easy for Clemson and Notre Dame to win and then, you know, fundraise and pay their coaches and build facilities and do what they want to do. Um, but it, it's it's not easy for the Syracuses of the world, the Dukes of the world, at least from a – I mean, the, the other part that let's talk about the story is, you know, because of their Carolina roots, and we say this on the day Roy Williams is retiring um, – Many football people in the ACC think it's way too much focus on basketball and tradition. And college basketball, and I love it as much as anyone, just isn't what it used to be. And from a money standpoint, you know, it doesn't even hold a candle to football right now. Um, and if that's what you're going to prioritize, and Jim Phillips, the new commissioner, to his credit, has said, why can't we have it all? Um, and I think that would eventually mean a move from probably outside the state of North Carolina, if not outside Greensboro, for the conference headquarters to maybe Charlotte or D.C. or to a bigger media epicenter in future years. Um, they have to be more focused on football. And it's funny we're having this conversation now because if you look at where the ACC was football-wise before, say, 2012, 2013, it was awful. I mean, remember Clemson getting run off the field by West Virginia in the Orange Bowl, which led to the firing of Kevin Steele and the hiring of Brent Venables? I mean, remember Florida State tripping over itself year after year after year. And John Swafford basically gave all these schools an ultimatum ultimatum to care more and invest more in football. And to their credit, they've done that. I mean, now it's basically turned into Clemson and everyone else among full-time members, but the ACC has made every college football playoff. They had two teams in the college football playoff last year, including Notre Dame, and they've had multiple schools win the national championship since 2013. But I, I do think something needs to be done money-wise. And that quote about Notre Dame, I think, was interesting because – I mean, I think there's some truth to that in, in the sense of what was Notre Dame going to do? And it's easy to have these conversations in hindsight and, and in retrospect and say, well, they should have done this, this, and this. I can tell you right now, remembering just how tense everything about this world was back in the summer, if the AC, if Notre Dame asked for a, a landing spot and the ACC said now or never and that got out publicly, can, can you imagine the, the bad PR that would be going 
that the ACC would get for that, for not helping out Notre Dame during a pandemic when everyone needs to help out everyone. I mean, the Big Ten got killed for going conference only on their own uh, without asking any of the other conferences for for guidance or, or for alignment on that. So um, I think it's easy to say in hindsight, but it is true. I mean, what was Notre Dame going to do? I mean, they could have scheduled on their own the way maybe Liberty did and have a not very good schedule and always adjusted on the fly because of cancellations and no conference help and other conferences going conference only. But um, it it is a fascinating hypothetical, right? If the ACC with an outgoing commissioner said, we'll help you, but this is what you got to do for us. I don't know what happens. Yeah, it's you think that the ACC could have said like, hey, uh, this cur- we'll help you out this year. Current deal is fine, but at the end of the deal, you're all in. Like there some sort of date certain down the road. But I do think talking to John Swafford, I wrote about this in December, um, talked to Bobby Cunningham at North Carolina, who's obviously very busy now. Um, it just didn't seem like there was a big appetite around the people who make the decisions in the ACC. I'm not like football coaches don't make decisions. If, if right. that quote had come from an AD, right. I would have felt a lot differently about it. Um, the fact that it came from a football coach who probably complains about everything, including Notre Dame going to the Camping World Bowl. Uh, he gets you know shafted into the Pinstripe Bowl or the Quick Lane Bowl or whatever, whatever super minor ACC bowl that is. Like football coaches complain about everything. So if if an AD was pushing it, that would be different. Or if it came from somebody in the conference offices, um, that would be different. Um, as it stands, a football coach is is there to complain and. That wasn't that wasn't too big of a surprise to me, but I do, you know, you mentioned sort of the ACC overall. I, th- I think that the state of affairs probably hurts Clemson more than it hurts Notre Dame, don't you think? Like Notre Dame still has USC, Stanford, Georgia series, Wisconsin series, Alabama, all that stuff. Clemson really has to may have to start thinking outside the box with, all right, do we need to be playing South Carolina? I realize that's like sacrosanct down there, and you know, have more series with Georgia, which I think they have uh, on the docket coming up. Like they may have to schedule that way because there there will be an admission that the conference schedule is just not just not cutting it for them. Yeah, I mean, it's less about scheduling, I think, for them than it is again the financial impact of the conference being in position to not be poached and be ready for the next wave of the ground shifting, which. Seems to happen every 10 years or so in college sports. Notre Dame, I mean, I don't want to say it's not about money because that makes everyone out to be martyrs, but like, it's like they lose money on this NBC deal. Not lose money, but like they have, they they make less money on the NBC deal than they do if they join a conference full time financially. No one seems to understand that. Everyone made such a big deal about Notre Dame sharing these precious NBC dollars with the rest of the ACC when they got in last year and I'm like, it's not that much money. I mean, it's something they have to do and should do, but they're not make. it's probably $15 million a year is what the industry largely speculates around it. And I think it goes through 2025, if I'm not mistaken. And, you know, we'll see where things are then, but, um, learning it's about the independence. And again, the people, most people in the office and most of the athletic directors who have worked in Erdane in the past, as you alluded to know this, like, that brand is worth a lot more as an independent than it is as a another conference team. Being an being an independent is the brand. Yes, like they're one in the same. Yes. Now again, you need to do something to get out of the current TV deal you're in, 
and adding a brand as big as Notre Dame, however big it may be 20 years from now or however little it may be 20 years from now, is the easiest and most natural way to do that. I just don't know if that's going to happen. Now, I, I did kind of get a kick out of the end being like, well, if the Big 12 is right for poaching, maybe Texas or Oklahoma can be there. And I'm like, okay, now we're talking. Let's get a super conference with Texas, Oklahoma, no, partial Notre Dame, and Clemson. I mean, have your own playoff right – well, Texas wouldn't qualify, but have your own three-team three, three team race for uh, ACC supremacy right there with Oklahoma, Clemson, and Notre Dame. That, that would be exciting. But um, something needs to be done for the sake of the conference – uh, and for the security of the conference, because again, we, we talk about Notre Dame being fine financially. They're fine financially in the Big East. They still need a place to put everything uh, when the Big East folded and the ACC became that landing spot. So something to, to monitor down the road as the uh, tectonic plates continue to shift in college sports and as everyone gets pissed at Mark Emmert in Indianapolis and hopefully breaks <laughs> off and does their own thing, at least from the FBS standpoint. Yeah, that's uh, there's there's a lot, a lot to monitor moving forward. I believe the Shamrock will be going on hiatus next week uh, as I go speak, on Speak for yourself. <laughs> as, yeah, maybe you can do a solo show, find a guest. But I will be on spring break. As I look outside and see snow in my yard, <laughs> makes me question why I'm going to the Upper Peninsula of Michigan for spring break. It's but o- opening day at Wrigley Field. It's actually sunny right here, but it was snowing last night. It's, it's Weird times. Weird times we live in. Um, but we'll have plenty of stuff on uh, The Athletic covering Notre Dame. But the Shamrock, I think, uh, unless I do a remote podcast from a mountain, uh, do a a backstory on Tom Izzo's humble roots in Iron Mountain, uh, I don't think there's going to be a whole lot of uh, stuff to talk about as as Notre Dame goes on a bit of a break here. Um, If I get my buddy Vince Vaughn and you're not available, we're going without you. That's Yeah, you should just go ahead. I'm I'm all for it. Uh, Get get Jamie O'Hara on the podcast and, and roll with that. But... We will be back because after next week, um, Notre Dame is, uh, again, on a bit of a break. And then uh, there's going to be plenty of stuff to talk about as we've got multiple players, multiple assistant coaches, Brian Kelly a few times, uh, and hopefully perhaps even a open spring practice. But that is not the, on the The snow does not work in our favor in that regard. No, we need 70 degrees in Notre Dame to practice in the stadium, and then perhaps the media can get a look at it. But um, until then... Uh, he's Matt Fortuna. I'm Pete Sampson. You've been listening to the latest episode of The Shamrock. Thanks for being with us. Mm-hmm.